And good afternoon. It's 4 o'clock. Uh, thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located here in Lower Crothers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. This is Finding a Voice, spoken word program airing here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca as well. In the first hour from an October 10th book launch and reading event held at Novel Idea Bookstore, you'll hear Erica Berish-Alke uh, launching her new book uh, called uh, Lady Franklin in Russell Square. And uh, following that from an October 11th book launch and reading event again at that bookstore you'll hear readings by john donlin with his out all day and miriam claver with fate accompli murder in quebec city in the second hour from uh, an october 4th book launch and reading again held at novel idea bookstore and you'll hear readings by kath mclean who is launching her book called uh, uh i can't read my writing here Translating error, there we go. And uh, her reading, and then also reading uh, that evening with uh, host Elizabeth Green. The usual hourly announcement, occasionally some poetry spoken word or music played on this show may contain strong language, but all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. Going to be a very tight show today, so I'm just going to jump right into it, trying to get three book launches in this afternoon. Let's go ahead and move into the October 10th book launch and reading event that was emceed by Chantal Lavoie. And uh, here is Erica Berish-Alke reading from and launching her new book called Lady Franklin of Russell Square. So again, as introduced by Chantal, here it is. Maybe, well, let's just try to upload this again, and we'll get it to go this time. Here we go. Okay, hello. My name is Chantal Lavoie. I'm one of Erica Barish-Elsa's many friends. Thank you very much to Oscar and to Novel Idea for nurturing, writing, and writers in Kingston, as they always do here. And thanks to all of you for being here. The novel we're here to celebrate tonight is a work of historical fiction penned by a woman who knows a lot about history and a lot about fiction. Erica Berish-Elsa's academic book, which also is for sale, uh, as as affecting the fate of my absent husband, Selected Letters of Lady Franklin Concerning the Search for the Lost Franklin Expedition was published by Queen's University Press in 2009. Since then, she has been tirelessly active in research, writing, publishing, teaching, and sharing the richness of Arctic exploration and literature here and in other far-flung outposts of the Commonwealth, having traveled in 2015 to Australia to contribute to the Franklin Discovery Lecture Series sponsored by the Canadian High Commission. Now, Lady Franklin of Russell Square, which I think almost (laughs) everyone here must have by now, um, a novel in which knowledge, creativity, and all of that passion for literature come together is added to her list of accomplishments. 
a year or so ago, I found myself saying to Erica, you know, if I had arrived in Kingston and you didn't already exist, I would have had to have invented you. <laughs> well, Lady Franklin did exist, and Erica did invent her. Please join me in welcoming them both. Um, so thank you, thank you everyone for coming. It's really nice to um, see you all and um, just to be surrounded by friendly faces um, and students who are awake and interested. <laughs> um, I want to begin by doing something that Lady Franklin um, would never have dreamt of. And uh, as the wife of a colonial lieutenant governor in Australia, part of her job was in fact to push against evidence of other cultures and histories wherever the British had set up camp. Um, but here tonight with her historical shadow beside me, I want to say that I am grateful to the Huron, Anishinaabe, and Haudenosaunee people for having so long enriched this land with their stories and lives, and for the stories and lives from those nations that are with us today and that are yet to come. Uh, I feel honored to have written my own small story on this land. Um, I started writing this novel, it comes from humble beginnings. I started writing it when everyone else was reading Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> and I thought that there must be a place in literature for complete sentences and strong female characters. So, so I set about writing one myself. Um, the novel comes out of my long-standing interest in Lady Franklin and my research on her and her writing and her engagement uh, with the Admiralty in the 1840s and 1850s during the search for her husband and his lost companions in the Arctic. Um, I was mostly interested in, um, in what got left out of the story of Lady Franklin, who was known in the 19th century and even today as the wife of the lost polar hero and as the Penelope of England. And I thought um, she, there must be more to it than that. There's no way she was ever that simple. Um, so I couldn't have finished this book without um, my writing mentor, Helen Humphreys, who I don't think is with us tonight. Uh, she was a writer in residence uh, at RMC a couple of years ago, and she uh, read the first um, collection of vignettes that I had written all together, and she very gently and kindly bossed me around in order to get it done. So I couldn't have finished it without her, and I could not have started it without uh, Lady Franklin having been such a fascinating person herself um, all those years ago. Um, we do have a value-added evening uh, because, <laughs> sorry Bill, um, <laughs> as Chantelle mentioned, I did a speaking tour in Australia called the Franklin Discovery Series, and um, my partner in that speaking tour was none other than Captain Bill Noon of the Canadian Coast Guard, who happens to be with us uh, this evening. So whose Coast Guard ship, the Sir Wilfrid Laurier, was instrumental in the discovery of the Erebus and Terror. So in 2014 and 2016. All right. Yeah, I am buying him a beer after, after this presentation. Um, so just a little bit of background. In 1845, uh, Sir John Franklin and 128 companions left and were never seen again. So they left for the Arctic. Um, and 
1845, Lady Franklin left too. So she left with her stepdaughter, Eleanor, and they traveled for two years around Europe and America. And in 1847, when they returned, she expected, she came home specifically to welcome her husband back home after his triumphant return, which everyone expected would be shortly. Um, so uh, 1847 is the year of expected triumph. It doesn't happen. Um, and the my novel really is about Lady Franklin keeping herself busy during the time when she's waiting for her husband. Um, and she does some of her favorite things. She writes to him. She agitates on his behalf. Um, she visits Russell Square, which is a park at the end of the road where she grew up, and uh, a place, it's a little urban park um, in the middle of London, and um, where I imagine that she may have spent some of her best hours. Mm. Um, where, and she spreads seeds, writes bad poetry, chats with the gardener, and generally <laughs> gets into mischief. So it's a waiting game, um, but Russell Square also represents an escape from the pressures of being that, that person, that Penelope of England that everybody expects her to be. So um, the sections that I wanted to read to you tonight, um, no spoilers, I had to make sure not to <laughs> include any of those. Um, the first one is from 1847, so when she is, when she's newly back in London, um, and October 1847 has passed. October was the date that, uh, Sir John Franklin himself had given as the date, the earliest date that people could expect to, um, to hear back from them. My dearest love, well, the deadline I have given you, indeed the one you gave yourself, has come and gone, and still no word from you. None of those silly little tin tubes, and nothing more definite either. I will tell you then what I have done. I have seen Captain Hamilton at Whitehall. I know you will shake your head at my silly woman's worry, but I could not help myself. If I let your silence slide into nothingness, what will I be? Only a wife without a husband, and there are enough of those in the Royal Navy already. Thank you very much. If you are not here with me, then someone should know where you are. The day I went was overcast, the clouds a perfect accompaniment to the gray of the stuffed dress I chose for the visit. I projected a somber earnestness, if I say so myself, but I think was not completely successful in hiding my growing anxiety for you. Captain Hamilton was, as always, such a youngster, hurriedly shuffling papers on his desk as I was ushered in, glancing wildly around as if I were his own mother, catching him looking at French postcards. <laughs> we are not so different in age, he and I, but a conversation with me always pushes him to his limit. We've only ever had one or two chance encounters, but you remember that it's ever thus. Yes, madam. No, madam. Three bags full, madam. And now I have extra gravitas by association. I've called it the Franklin factor. Well, it was the same this morning. Shuffling pages, sitting up straighter, eyes casting about for an escape route. I blocked the door and was glad I'd chosen my gray dress, which is understated, but accommodates my largest petticoat. <laughs> I won't bore you with the details, but we mutually suffered through a dignified and not very useful conversation before I asked for news. He said he had none. Instead, taking me to the map table over by the window in the anteroom, he showed me your intended route through the eastern pack a story I have heard and traced myself countless times before, though infinitely more lovingly. I almost felt he had overstepped personal decorum, decorum sorry, when his finger traced the same line mine has so many times. 
I asked about news from the Northwest or Hudson's Bay Company and received a shrug and a point to Norway House. Esquimalt? Point. Victoria? Point. Montreal? Point. Kamchatka? Point. Valparaiso? Point. I suggested to him that I had come to his office for reasons other than a geography lesson, at which point he held his palms to the ceiling in a gesture of surrender. Yes, madam. Captain Hamilton! I raised my eyebrows at him and hovered my own hand over the map as his own retreated. Are you telling me that not one person in your limitless and noble institution has heard one official word concerning the whereabouts of my husband? The truant schoolboy. Yes, madam. May I ask what you propose to do about it? I couldn't help it. I felt my hand twitch, a grasping motion over the blank polar space. This was the question of the moment, and the good captain actually rose to the challenge. It turns out those nervously shuffled papers were not French postcards, but letters from your old comrades, Sir James Ross, Sir John Richardson, Sir Edward Perry, and some of your others, Sir George Back, Sir John Ross, all the ones you left behind in 1845 some of whom make up the table at Bedford Place. All had been asked for their opinion as to your whereabouts, though Richardson and Perry never mentioned it to me. It wasn't exactly news, but it was a good indication <coughs> that more than Eleanor Richardson and I were thinking of you. Men who can do something about it are on your trail too. Though we don't yet actually have you with us, knowing that the Admiralty has started to stoke its vast administrative engine on your behalf is a balm on my nerves. For now, I know there will be news. They send men up the Niger, up the Chadu, down the Amazon, and to the Great Barrier Reef. A few hundred miles of blank space with two ships will hardly be a challenge. I can almost smell you. You are so close. Um, so while she's um, while she is waiting for news, and um, you know, in 1849, 1850, there are more than a dozen ships that actually go north. Um, she hangs out in Russell Square and just waits for letters and, and news to pour in. You will not believe me, but I assure you, it is true. The new gardener in Russell Square speaks to the birds. I took my usual turn in the garden and was trying to place an, un an especially unusual bird song and noticed that the sound was emanating from the mouth of Mr. Rowe. Truth be told, he was the last one I saw in the gaggle of songbirds twittering and fluttering about in the bower. I was first struck by the number of little songsters clearly enjoying themselves among the leaves, and then I noticed him at the center of them all, holding court. London is no place for a songbird. And yet there they were, reveling in all their colors and octaves in the center of Little Russell Square, chatting to Mr. Rowe as if at a garden party. Whistling, my secret ambition, as you know, continues to fail me, but my initial jealousy at his prowess gave way at his sheer virtuosity. I admit I sat down just to listen and may have been open-mouthed in wonder. When he caught me looking at him, he went silent, though I saw him deliver a wink to his feathered companions that accompanied his final trill. <coughs> if I did not believe that it was impossible, I would say the birds actually turned to look at me before chirping their farewells to Mr. Rowe and quitting the bower en masse. Mr. Rowe returned to his trimming. What do you think he said to them about me? I can't help but wonder. <laughs> so she develops a relationship with, with the gardener um, while she uh, is dealing with the in intense pressure of uh, her husband missing and 
um, going head to head basically with with the Admiralty and the entire British government. <laughs> um, and so uh, Russell Square and her friendship with Mr. Rowe becomes a very um, uh, special escape for her, um, but also has its own complications. So the last section I'll read is just um, something that, uh, just a little moment that they have that makes her wonder about the trajectory that her life might have taken. You will not credit it, I know, but this old shoe can indeed learn a new dance. I am embarrassed to say at this shamefully late stage that I am learning to be patient. Wait, let me amend that statement. I am learning the unexpected pleasure of patience, like waiting for a drop of cold honey to fall on one's tea-warm tongue. It is, I must tell you, as much because of Mr. Rowe and Russell Square as you. Read on and become terribly, violently jealous, please. Domestic, familiar, and, yes, strikingly handsome. I can't deny my attraction to the gardener, and it makes me laugh at my age. He's younger than I, no Lieutenant Bellow, to be sure, but he has enough of the nephew about him that makes his familiarity unthreatening. He has that combination I have ever found irresistible, and which first attracted me to you all those years ago. A properly tied cravat, a perfectly fitted waistcoat, Strong hands and dirt on his boots. <laughs> Homo practicalis. <laughs> his proximity doesn't hurt either, since you asked. Um, but not to worry. The secateurs, the secateurs are ever between us, ready to slice through social awkwardness or lop off any renegade limb that strays too close for comfort. <laughs> my pleasure in seeing him fills me with horror, even as I indulge my secret heart. In taking delight in a new companion, I feel I am betraying you a little each time, consigning you to a death that is in many ways far worse than all the reported starvation or scurvy or drowning. In my heart, I feel that you are slowly being and must be relinquished. But it is not quite how I have described it. Mr. Rowe and I do have a mutual love. It is Russell Square. It carries no risk of loss or absence, inequity or betrayal. The flowers and shrubs accept our attentions and give back every day, in every season, their colors and scents as an expression of our own value in the world. For it is we who help to bring them forth, we who appreciate them even to their very roots. It is sensual and colorful and pungent and passionate, and we revel in it with abandon, touching, smelling, staring into the heart of things, and even, in moments of high summer, tasting. It is, of course, innocent enough on the surface. <laughs> but my beating heart cautions me, cautions me to suspect something more. On sunny days or cloudy, windy or benign, we have our Mondays. Mr. Rowe and I wander through Russell Square Garden discussing the lives of the plants, watching bees enter and suck fra fragrant blooms. <laughs> Steve. <laughs> Each week on my constitutional this summer, he has had me sample another plant from the garden with one of my senses. First, it was pinching a young rosemary sprig between my teeth. Then it was cracking a lime leaf against the inside of my wrist. Most recently, he plucked two pink rose petals from the bush on the northeast corner of the garden. The color of English youth, perhaps my cheek once looked as lovely, and took two small lumps of sugar from his pocket. I watched him as he carefully wrapped each lump of sugar in a rose petal, the shadow of his eyelashes making a pattern like the edge of a rose leaf on his clean-shaven teeth. I stood still, the sound of my dress blending with the slight rustle of the leaves on the warm afternoon. He noticed a spot of yellow pollen on the edge of one of the petals, 
I watched as it left a slight cloudy streak on his left thigh as he brushed it absently against his trouser leg. He held one rose petal envelope up in each hand, extending his left one, the one he had brushed against his thigh, toward me. Gingerly, so the package would not unwrap itself, I took the gift from him with my bare hand. My nails were dirty. His eyes holding mine, he slowly raised his own rose petal package to his mouth, shaking his hand slightly and nodding to encourage me to do the same. I was mesmerized, utterly hypnotized, and unable even to question what I was doing with this man, a virtual stranger in the public garden of my youth. But as my eyes took in his actions, I raised my own hand to my lips, closed my mouth around the ersatz suite, and pressed the rose petal against my tongue. As I had opened my own mouth, I caught a glimpse of the inside of his. He was missing a left molar and one of his... <laughs> and one of his bottom front teeth was askew. His tongue was pink. I blushed to see it and blushed to my private embarrassment to think of it now, that small, moist, intimate part of him I'm sure he rarely thinks about, but which I have found I now often wonder. A part he takes with him that gives him pleasure in its use, which vibrates to the sound of his voice and moves when he swallows. I wonder often what flavors it has tasted during his travels. So there we were, two people, one old, the other not quite so much, standing in the dappled shade of Russell Square on the path next to the rose bush from whence he had plucked the petals, our eyes on each other's and sucking our lumps of sugar through our rose petals <laughs> together. If I were condemned to die and were given one last meal, this is what I would choose. A tree-ripened peach from a Mortimer orchard cooled in the cellar of Bedford Place and a single lump of sugar folded within the petal of a Russell Square rose. <laughs> to me and I hope that you like Lady Franklin as much as I have enjoyed working with with her and her amazing personality. Thank you. And thank you Oscar and Neil for all those Twitters. <laughs> <laughs> And you just heard Eric um, Berish Alki uh, launching and reading from her latest book, Lady Franklin of Russell Square. Up next and moving to the following night at Novel Idea, here is John Donlan reading from and launching his new collection of poetry called Out All Day. Welcome, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming out. Uh, thanks to Oscar and Joanna and Novel Idea for always offering up this beautiful space and the wonderful things they do for literature in Kingston. Here, here. I didn't organize. Oh, and thank you all for coming out. Yes. <laughs> this, this worked out really cool. This is a beautiful little space. And I came here with only the intention to record, but I know John, and so he was in need of an introducer, is that a word? Uh, <laughs> a a, a no. offer? Uh, yeah, poetic license. So. <laughs> so I'm going to introduce him, and then it'll flow from there. John Donlin is a author of five previous collections of poetry, Domestic Economy, Brick Books, Baysville, Anansi, uh, Green Man, Ronsdale, Spirit Engine, Brick, uh, 
and uh, call me the breeze Alfred Gustav press and he is launching tonight out all day his newest uh, collection uh, he is the author of a guide to research at your laboratory uh, Ontario Library Association 2002 he's editor with brick books was is and was the 2012 2013 Barbara Moon editorial fellow at Massey College University of Toronto the 2014-15 Writer-in-Residence at Saskatoon Public Library and the 2016-17 Hague Brown Writer-in-Residence in Campbell River. He divides his time between Vancouver, B.C. and South Frontenac, Ontario. Uh, his website's in here and I'm sure he'd be happy to give that to you, but I'm not going to just <laughs> read it out because I wouldn't remember it. So anyway, gives me great pleasure to introduce John Donlan. Thank you very much, Bruce. Thank you all again for coming. It's a pleasure to see you. so many people come out to a poetry and murder. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever you're here for. <clears throat> okay, the first uh, poem is called South Frontenac. South Frontenac's muggy nights in June are thick with sex and death. On Highway 38, teenagers race the black future beyond their car's twin antennae of light, where frog-dotted asphalt slices the marsh, and the dark pulses with ephemerae whose day this is to fly and mate and die. Exoskeletons tick against the glass that curves to shield these children covertly glancing by dash light at faces, bodies, who never again will feel so much as now. And we, cooler at heart, half remembering, dream them safe to bed. Sunday morning in the wrecker's yard, a chipping sparrow picks bugs off the grill of a Dodge Ram 1500 truck. I'm going to save you a lot of reading time because I've discovered all the good poems are on the left-hand page. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't plan that. Okay, out all day. Finger-combing deerfly carcasses out of what's left of my hair. I puzzle over my most minute machinery, the cascade of chemical reactions, Proteins, electric snakes bunched, their branched and folded chains like overtwisted flex cord, flickering with life, without thought, without intention. The path from there to here has too many connections, overwhelms, as when a widower, hearing his wife's name, weeps. Dragonflies hover and dart like gunships, and I scratch my head, and the pond's lacy scrim of lily pads might map the molecule of happiness 30,000 atoms long. Lotus. Today, I spent too long breathing the scent the wind carried across the water. Acres of white water lilies, thousands 
at the far shore under the forest wall their dots. Here they could be emblems of enlightenment and perfect peace. Disordered by their perfume, I imagine this afternoon unending. I jump the job, never, never to return, while my colleagues drudge and laugh that I call this work. That's how far I am from enlightenment and perfect peace. When I look out again, the lilies have closed against the sun, fisted in green casings until tomorrow. I don't know if you're familiar with that word, to jump, jump the job? Anybody heard of that? No. Oh, okay. It's a valley thing. I guess my dad used to say, you jump the job. And then I was working with some French guys in Quebec, and he said, you jump the job. <laughs> okay. Whirly gig. End of July, trees call it a season. Shut down their green workshops and let them rust. Bumper cars in water dimples. Whirligig beetles, zoom and carom, rippling moonlight. Perseids sing their fire songs as they streak our black stadium, burning up into atoms of atmosphere. Crickets begin in a thousand insect voices. Scraping legs are a voice. And deer mice trill high, urgent love calls from the trees. On an outflung arm of the Milky Way, we wonder what to do and what to say from our lush life, so postmodern, so free, to equal their conviction, their necessity. Long past moonset, we lie outside and listen and stare up into the star-hazy night. north of Seven. Roads up here, north of the IQ line. <laughs> Just quoting, quoting, allegedly. Follow the curve of the land like a strap over a woman's shoulder. Downslope, weedy streams invite you to paddle off into prehistory. Ampa, a short portage between English and Algonquin. Clouds, sacks of water like ourselves, symbols of soul's high desire, show how the wind blows over the sawmill at Finacher, taking the tall trees into its mouth for all of us. For the Baysville Public School Reunion. <coughs> My old two-room schoolhouse is gone. Grades one to four, downstairs a lady teacher. Upstairs the last four grades, a man. And the brash new brick one closed in 66. How high the hip roof loomed. Yet we would throw hex nuts with string streamers attached back and forth over it. And those red, white, and blue foam rubber balls. Here, gone to vanish and return. Most of my class of eight survive, though shy, lovely Nellie Lunan's dead, suffering and brave under her mother's hand-me-down Mother Hubbards, who captured my hand for our class photo. 
proud, diffident, beaten, defiant, secret, our frozen faces can never age or die. They snatch us back out of time each time they catch our eye. It's a Toronto poem, The George River Caribou Herd. Along Devonshire, a line of dump trucks idles as one crawls roaring out of its square pit like an angry mastodon, another creeps down slope to be loaded with blue-gray glacier dregs the city digs and builds on. Bloor Street westbound is pale with their dust. Traffic twirls it high, the wind snatches it up and around the world. Some even falls on the George River caribou herd, walking from James Bay to the Labrador Sea, 800,000 strong. If you were there, the dust would be black flies. You'd hear only ankles clicking, the blurts and murmurs of caribou bellies, the rasp of teeth and lips tearing the lichen free, the soft knock of their hooves on stone, the light breeze blowing around the world. Caducity. After the clear-cuts catastrophe, rising forest life welcomes the dead. Leaves and twigs that fall are gnawed to mulch by insect jaws, digested by microbes. A branchless snag becomes a totem condo, cave mouths each with its family. When finally it falls, its tons of mass are soon more living matter than dead wood. Death builds the hungry soil which feeds us all. A philosopher says this is happiness, this failing and falling, this rising up, an impersonal kind of happiness. I don't like fishing now. I only went this year to be with my oldest friend. We towed home six smallmouth, fresh and alive, tethered through the rasped jaw and gaping scarlet gill. One by one, I clubbed them dead and Gary cleaned. One had somehow f swum free, but still it stayed beside the rest, slow, weary, nuzzling. I don't know what it was. It looked like love. <coughs> this is definitely a South Frontenac poem. White Clover. They line backcountry roads like crowds, swaying as interesting persons pass, parting for driveways into forest-walled yards where weekenders or lifers stare. Now, who might you be? And we stare back. <laughs> to township trucks, we raise two fingers from the wheel, the faces in the cabs almost unseen. Here, as with any steady, kind regard met and held, we nod. This grave bow, this slow lowering of the head, says more than any wave, that false dismissive distancing gesture. Salute's losses survived, lonelinesses, our private common core. Illuminates the root of love itself. I see you. I accept.
Poundmaker. This is a Saskatoon poem. As I walked home one winter night, a white hair stood in Temperance Street. Its black-tipped ears and backward-looking eye attended my approach. You're not from here, it said. Spirit of the place, when we are gone, our homes and cars and streets return to prairie, you will remain, sniffing for swelling buds above the snow. To make peace with grief that rends me, I remember that winter night, the great white hair. Vancouver. City birds. They spit sunflower seeds and scratch the black, wet all winter earth, darkly watched by glaring cats. If they're stabbed with fears and sorrows of a short, fragile life, they never let on, but gamely flit and peck, flirt and court, their pea-sized hearts thrumming with lust and hunger. Now, now, street lights on at three. We're in the egg, the very yolk of winter solstice, eating darkness while light pecks our shell. Still not ground down or blunted horribly, despite the shocking mirror. No, Christ's death, we're seven again, expecting a mystery rabbit, Easter chocolate, sweet white and yellow centers. <laughs> Wandering Spirit. Wandering Spirit, like Poundmaker, was a, a Cree chief. Wandering Spirit was a, a war chief. He was put in charge of battle when there was one. In memoriam, uh, Elise Partridge. When the heart, that shy, wise animal, comfortable in its failing cage, wakes in pain, pounding tenderly for attention, we offer only this comfort. We breathe, swell red ribs hanging off hat rack spine, flex cartilage invisibly gleaming so that our sad lieutenant has full room to pulse sorrow and rage to every cell, to feed this body the unfeeling world. To my heart. Heart, you're wearing out. Your two gray scars still flex and close like a hand around a working tool, every evening readier for rest. For all your hard wear, you are more tender than ever. The woman you love grows ever dearer. The least creature thrives on your benign neglect, and you're forgiven the days you work in darkness and feel nothing at all. Because Miriam's a very funny writer, this is my last poem, so it's a little lighter. <laughs> Not such a downer. <laughs> Tooth and Claw. Actually, this poem is here because I submitted what I thought were 50 good poems, and two publishers said, well, they're really nice, but it's too short. You've got to produce. So I ransacked the past and burgled into the future, and anyway, here we go. <laughs> Light verse, tooth and claw. 
They cut you open and drink your blood. But they're drops and you're the flood. If only they didn't sting and itch. The spring snuffled and drowned and now it's fall. We don't understand it at all. A sense of impending doom tries to fill the room, but you're getting too big for your britches. You alone will be dead. The sons of bitches will drink blood as long as there's water in ditches. (laughs) (laughs) Our next reader... And you just heard John Donlan reading from and launching his latest collection of poetry called Out All Day at Novel Idea Bookstore. Up next that same evening, here is Miriam Claver launching and reading her latest book called Fate Accompli, Murder in Quebec City. Is the Dr. Miriam Claver? <coughs> My wife? <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you all for coming, and pardon if I, me if I turn this around. Um, I need some notes so I don't give anything away. <laughs> so, and thank you, Novel Idea, and thank you again for coming to an evening, uh, a typical reading evening of murder mystery and lyric poetry. Now, um, my mystery novels fall in the subgenre of medium-boiled literary mysteries. And it's not a big category. (laughs) But to describe my stories, to borrow a line, um, which some of you have heard, I like to say that I write for intelligent readers with colds. (laughs) So um, this here... Okay, this was my first mystery book. And by the way, there's a bunch of these um, bookmarks over at the table. Please help yourself. Uh, So, Insinuendo, Murder in the Museum, is set at MOA, the UBC Museum of Anthropology in Vancouver. And the new one, Fait Accompli, uh, Murder in Quebec City, is set uh, on a dig in historic lower town of, of that city. The protagonist in both books is an amateur sleuth whose name is Bernice Barry Cates. And she works as a conservator preserving heritage. And so right up front, for those of you who don't know me, I have to disclose that I'm also a museum conservator. (laughs) And I've worked on archaeological digs as well as uh, at MOA and other museums. So... I should emphasize that these (coughs) novels are entirely fictional murder mysteries. (laughs) And at the same time, they're accurate behind-the-scenes views of uh, digs and museums. I think I I know the settings pretty well, and in fact, maybe too well, because... Writing a murder mystery made me appreciate just how many ways there are to kill somebody quite dead (laughs) in my profession of art conservation. And we do have some other conservators here tonight, so just watch out, everybody. (laughs) So to give you some background to the novels and my protagonist, Barry Cates has undergone, as she says in her own words, a radical lifectomy. After an unwanted divorce, she goes back to school, she retrains as a conservator, 
and she finds herself in her early 50s as a complete newbie, as an inexperienced intern in a new profession in unfamiliar cities. So to introduce Barry, the kind of character she is, I'll just read a little bit from the first book. By 2.30, I was out of a job at the Seattle Museum. That was her first internship. Fiscal year-end shortfall, non-essential museum programs cut. Bernice, I couldn't justify keeping on a Canadian in a state-funded position, which ends in five months. I won this internship competitively. Yes, you did. There were two applicants. <laughs> the director took off his glasses and wiped them with a pocket handkerchief. It was a good excuse not to look me in the eye. You also just about killed a school child when he swallowed lead shot from one of your conservation weights. <laughs> the conservators. <laughs> um, that's not true. The student broke open the weights and the teacher did nothing. I was showing the class the microscope, and when I lifted my head, the boy was popping the lead shot like pills. <laughs> You're old enough to be the teacher's mother, the director, the director muttered. There'll be a little send-off Thursday afternoon. He added by way of apology, You're not the only one. I replied, I want a letter. Do you now? I want a letter stating that my position was terminated due to a funding shortfall. <laughs> he wiped at his glasses some more. His computer beeped that he had incoming mail, and the director turned his back to me and began to click and read. I sat. A good 15 minutes later, he swung around to phone and fumbled the handpiece as I gazed back. His fingers inched up towards his glasses, and then a grin disrupted his face. Before he threw me out, the director came around the desk and shook my hand. I shrugged and said, to a sharp knife comes a tough steak, and had to live on that old saying for close to a year. <laughs> Before reading excerpts from Fait Accompli, I'd like to first talk a little bit about what was behind my writing it, apart from knowing how conservators can kill people, <laughs> um, and why I set the story in Quebec City. So you've probably heard of the elevator pitch, yes, and the escalator pitch. So this is when you're pitching an idea, like a book to a publisher. During the very short time, it takes you to pass the publisher going up on the escalator and you're going down. So for fait accompli, I asked myself, if I were pitching this novel, what distinguishes it from other mysteries? Archaeology fascinates a lot of people, including myself. Um, but in my admittedly biased view, I find that the authentic, what really happened, is far more intriguing than the you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark treasure hunt. Uh, and also, personally, with a career in museums where institutions where words like forgery have come to rest, I wanted to make sure that the creative and creative writing did not mean lying to the reader. But now, if I'm asked to distinguish fait accompli from uh, non-treasure hunt mysteries, I'd have to say that the story has a different murder plot, of course, and it's very interesting to intelligent people with colds. It has wonderful characters, naturally, and has details that take the reader behind the scenes in archaeology, conservation, and also Quebec City, where I lived and worked before MOA. 
But if I were to escalator pitch this book and have to say in a very few words what makes fait accompli uh, especially different, I say, I'd say that the story's enmeshed not just in Quebec City, conservation and museums, but in the francophone atmosphere of joie de vivre. Some of you are, are looking skeptical. Are you thinking that joie de vivre is not exactly the best theme for a murder mystery? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess as I was writing, I came to understand that it's precisely because the characters love life so much and that Barry wants to live her own joie de vivre that the death or deaths strike so hard. So the novel's in Barry's voice, and here's a short excerpt. Quebec is a place whose citizens routinely say not I like, but je me passionne pour. Now here, so many years later, on this prized job in a marvelous city, it was I who for a, a few short months had been saying and living, I am passionate for, until today. So Barry feels she absolutely must sleuth out the killer. And when she attempts to eavesdrop on several conversations, uh, and one of the problems with being a sleuth in your early 50s is that your hearing is already starting to <laughs> <laughs> So Barry finds out that others suspect her of having hidden ties to the victim. So in this passage, Detective Sergeant Laflamme has just finished her first interview with Barry, and she is saying... You'll make a statement to the constable and sign it. I forbid you to leave town or change addresses. La Flamme's perfunctory monotone was at odds with the chilly glint in her eyes, almost daring me to answer back. And whatever you think you know, you tell us. The police give out all public information. You may express your condolences that Madame Poirier died from a fall during the storm. La Flamme began gathering up her papers. I stared at the police like a crab in a restaurant's tank. Just leave and don't touch me. <laughs> um, please note that I've used false names for the victim, or false name for the victim, and also most of the excerpts I'll read tonight will be very short because uh, along with my notes, I just don't want to give anything away. Now, there's another thing about Quebec City, which maybe want to set a, a murder mystery there, and some of which I'm sure you're familiar with, that is revenge is just li is literally written in stone in the city. I don't want to go into any divisive politics, but many of you will already be familiar with the Golden Dog. Um, it's, uh, this is an archival photo, it is, and it is a stone carving over 400 years old, still extant on one of the buildings in Upper Town. And here's one translation of the text that surrounds the, the golden dog. It's in Old French. I am a dog who gnaws a bone. As I chew, I take my rest. A time will come that is not yet here when I will bite him who has bitten me. <laughs> Here's what another writer has said about stories. Jean-Paul Sartre, 
and his books are probably here somewhere along with ours. <laughs> Jean-Paul Sartre is said to have written, the writer may judge his work or others by the quality of the writing, but the reader will judge it by the emotions it arouses. So to go back to write what you know, for me, I think that underlying that is always write what you feel. And I hope that fait accompli will touch your emotions in a real way because it's about real people or the characters are real, um, are, are real people in real situations. They experience real life. Um, and, uh, but don't think you can go look at the books and identify the characters and who's who because they are fictional characters. But I think personally that murder mysteries like thrillers tend to um, play on the emotions. And what I try and do is explore the emotions. But in speaking of a range of crime novels, uh, I guess I need to mention right now that the kind of books I write, the medium-boiled mystery rather than the hard-boiled uh, detective novel, but in a medium-boiled mystery, graphic violence and explicit sex are off the page. But thank you, Novel Idea, for inviting me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll read a few more excerpts from Fait Accompli. So in the first, Barry's being, <coughs> excuse me, Barry is being comforted by Danielle, her boyfriend. They're trying to overcome the horrible day of the murder and seeing the dead victim. So they're in his apartment, they're uh, drinking Merlot and eating Brie. And um, It's hard not being part of the gang here, I said. Everyone knows everyone. You all have the same touchstones. But your French is fluent. Maybe you can't rap in French, but you do okay. Is it the people here who make you feel more like a tourist? No, not here. In Montreal, maybe, they've subtly made the point I'm not Quebecoise, even with my French. How do they know? Danielle's lips moved without speaking while he considered what to say. Your style's, well, different, of course. Your dig clothes aren't à la mode, but the running shoes? You have no other shoes for walking? The downside of being chic in Quebec. Danielle had no idea what most women's shoes felt like. Avoiding any argument, I said, this cheese is delicious. <laughs> I found it on Ile d'Orléans. Danielle matched my sidestep. My gut clenched with images. The brie on the dark ceramic, like slices of pale bits of fingers curling out of the dirt. The gaunt face of the brother come into town from Ile d'Orléans to identify the body. As you know, in any murder mystery, there are a number of suspects. And here, in a rather fraught conversation, Barry is talking to Danielle, uh, the man she's in love with, and she is saying, thanks uh, for letting me know you were married before. I should have chosen better words. I mean, I said softly, it's really good you're telling me this. With Sylvie, four years. Then she passed away. At last, Danielle looked directly at me. I killed her. <laughs> so in the next passage, I want to show some of the details of, of how hard it can be to do artifact preservation on an archaeological dig. 
So the dig in this book is uncovering historic uh, building foundations and artifacts, particularly from the 17th through the 19th centuries. You'll hear the name Meg mentioned. She's Barry's assistant who uh, is responsible, responsible for drawing some of the finds. I gently moved two rocks aside so my trowel could create a smooth furrow across the dirt pile. Improvising on an art conservation technique I was familiar with, one that, with scalpels and brushes and tiny strokes, was used to reveal historic paint layers on frescoes. I took the same care passing my broad trowel across the damp soil, a deeper cut this time, but now going only nine-tenths of the way, so as I continued, a part of each layer would always be preserved intact. Never destroy evidence, particularly what the boss might want. On the eighth cut, my trowel passed a yielding lump. Finally, a bag with Meg's missing notes? Meg's notebook was indeed irreplaceable. It contained the only clear drawing of the weave pattern inside a rare Victorian rubber bathing slipper. The woven cloth lining had rotted away to leave nothing but an imprint in the burial mud. And the whole actual location of the find, the muddy soil itself, no longer existed. The shoe had been found in one of the dig's open trenches, now ruined by yesterday's storm. And then here, the next excerpt, will, I hope, show you how hard it uh, can, can be to be on an archaeological dig. Luc is the director of the dig and Monsieur Simon is a frequent visitor from the university. With his right hand collegially resting on Simon's back, Luc had directed his gaze towards the dig's newly opened trenches. All at once I could see from my upstairs window that the story being told here seemed vastly different from that warm welcome. Luke's hand had curled into a ball from its initial open palm of friendship. His fist was creeping nearer Simon's neck, almost as if Luke might be ready to push the eminent professor into the open hole. So I'll finish with a short excerpt about Barry the Sleuth. A lot of sleuths have a partner, a sidekick, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. And here Barry has just asked her wise workmate, Florence, if she would participate in the detective work. Florence slammed her cup down. Barry, never. It would only make enemies and I've lived in this town all my life. You now, you're an innocent newcomer. You keep asking your questions. She saw me grin. Just remember, though, if a trout keeps its mouth shut, it won't get caught. <laughs> so I'll leave it to you to see if Barry gets caught. Thank you. So, I don't know whether there's any questions for John yes, does or anyone myself. Have any questions, comments? 7.9. <laughs> <laughs> But there is some wine and goodies, if, but if... Loosen your tongue. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, then, if you want to, you know, have a, have a glass of wine and then ask, <laughs> ask yeah. us, talk to us, just, yeah, that's great. Okay. Thank you. Thank, Thank, you, Thank you, you very well. much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my glass. I'm ready. <laughs>
And you just heard Miriam uh, Claver, uh, Dr. Miriam Claver, launching and reading from her new book, uh, Fate Accompli. We're going to slide right into the 5 o'clock hour, but I do need to get these in here now, so I'll catch you right on the other side. And thanks for tuning in to the second hour of today's show. It's just a bit past two minutes after five o'clock i told you it was going to be a tight show today <laughs> you're listening to finding a voice here on cfrc 101.9 fm located in again lower carruthers hall queen's university kingston ontario my name is bruce here every friday afternoon from four to six o'clock we do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca in this second hour uh, from an October 4th book launch and reading, again, held at Novel Idea, uh, you'll hear uh, Kathleen, or I'm sorry, Kath McLean uh, launching her new book uh, called Translating Air. And uh, emceeing the event that night was Elizabeth Green, so you will also hear a reading from her following that. And what I'm going to do is uh, just... Um, Put it all together. You're going to hear it as it was that night. Uh, so this will essentially fill uh, the hour. So I do want to say the usual hourly announcement. Occasionally spo- uh, some uh, poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show does contra- uh, contain strong language, uh, but it's all played in its entirety uh, to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So... From an October 4th book launch and reading, again, held at the Novel Idea Bookstore. You're going to hear a reading uh, by uh, Kath McLean, reading from and launching her book, again, called Translating Air. And uh, then reading a reading by that evening's host, Elizabeth Green, who is who you'll hear first introducing her. So let's just jump into it. So Kath McLean is an award-winning poet and multimedia artist. Um, she's been an English professor and now teaches kindergarten. Um, her, well, there's a Kingston connection. She graduated from Queens and studied with Bronwyn Wallace. Um, and I'm especially thrilled to introduce her because she studied HD in my undergraduate <laughs> Selected Women Writers course. And, um, and one of the reasons that HD was on that course was that the department wouldn't let me teach her at the graduate level. So I said, okay, I'm going to teach her in my second and third year course in a student theater. Too bad, this is for me. <laughs> but, you know, um, Anyway, so I don't think I need to explain how wonderful it is to have a former student writing a book that catches HD's voice. I mean, you know, it doesn't get much better than that if you're a teacher. Um, so, um, so she has caught HD's voice, which isn't easy, and it's really thrilling. So, so please welcome Catherine Crane. <laughs> Oh, a couple of door prizes for those of you that <laughs> later on. Oh, this was a CD that I made in 2009. Goes from oh, uh, guzzles all the way from guzzles to a disco, guzzles to disco. So that's that's a special prize for. Those of you that first two, I think I brought two. So the first two people to 
first three people that buy a book you can get a free CD. All right. Um, yeah, I first, as Elizabeth said, I first was introduced to HD when I was still a teenager going to Queens. And um, I can't remember what my initial reaction was other than I remember Elizabeth saying, she's very difficult and she's not in anthology. She's not in the canon. That part haunted me for years because I always remember looking for her and going, well, I remember that she said she was really, and she was so brilliant. I remember that. Why isn't she here? And, of course, she wasn't, and she, she still really isn't. Um, that was a very special class to me because not only did that introduce me to HD, which years and years later has led to this book, but it also led to my former book, um, for some of you may know, um, Elizabeth's class is where I first read Catherine Mansfield, and I wrote a book about that in Cat Among the Tigers, which was my last my last book out when I was... Which is also wonderful. Which, when I was... Uh, at that time, I was a professor of English and creative writing at, at, uh, at West, in Edmonton. Um, so, I am deeply... Uh, deeply in, in gratitude of, uh, of Elizabeth and her class, and I think it's quite fitting that here I am back in Kingston, where it all started, because <laughs> it all started here. Um, so this, uh, this book was originally, I originally started writing this, although I read about HD in Kingston, I originally started writing about it just as I was finishing Cat in uh, St. Peter's in um, Saskatchewan. I began to write these things, and my initial reaction was, oh, no, I just got rid of Catherine Mansfield. <laughs> oh, this can't be happening. This can't be happening. And I, and I remember you know, saying to one of my colleagues, I go, no, 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 I'm not writing a book on HD. It's not going to happen. <laughs> and uh, I don't know how it happened, really. I think I started talking about it, and I think Elizabeth sent me that uh, her self-defined, which is still the the best book out on HD. Well, best yeah, best biography. Um, so that's where that's where this all starts. Um, one of you w was asking, Annabelle, I think you were asking how long it took to write this. So from start to finish, about seven years. And I also realized as I was going over my notes again, when HD started, to, uh, started her session with Freud in, in 1933, she was the same age that I started on this book. So this is like another weird coincidence. Wow. The other weird coincidence is, as I got into this book, research, her nickname was Cat. I just finished writing Cat. <laughs> also the same birth date, 1876. So, I don't know, things sometimes, I suppose, happen for reasons. Yeah, 1886. 1886, yeah, 1886 was just the same as yeah. Catherine, which is kind of odd. So I'm going to take this, I'll read you a few of these poems. Um, I'll start off with her beginning of um, her relationship with Ezra Pound. And these are things that haunted her for many, many years. When she first started 
seeing Freud, of course, he believed that all of her problems were associated with uh, having to do with her mother. But, uh, well, her choice of guys was, she was just, she was only 15 when she first met Ezra Pound, or Ray, as she will call him, and as he'll be referred to in here. Um, so, this is uh, one of the more graphic, going right back to the early 1900s. This is called, uh, Given to Unnatural Lust. Then I did not understand. I did not know that word. It was 1906-07, and we did not speak of it. There were signs, of course, William's grief, his consumptive sister's grave miles from the cemetery, and the letter he wrote, the flowered hand Ray would not let me touch. There were eccentricities, some overlooked, bright lurid socks, cousin Ed's talk, a woman bedded in the snow, Ray's frequent trips to the lily pond. Before and during, I was reading Alum Spento, and coming to the 15th jour Lenoir, I stopped praying and rose from my knees to talk with Mary, Bessie, and Louise. Father requested Ray not visit so very often anymore. There would be no announcement, no party where I might fling my glass to the floor and shatter any implication we were wed. There was little hope now. It was 1906-07, and I did not know the meaning of that word. But I knew town gossip, and the fiery kisses I'd so readily given had been so readily received. There were signs, of course. He wore brilliant socks, and visiting the lily pond, bedded a girl in the winter snow, returned her broken that spring. Common knowledge to Mary, Bessie, and Louise, but not, not to me. I did not know the meaning that word and its perpetual sting had yet to be invented. Oedipus complex, inferiority complex, claustrophobia, agoraphobia. The list was necessarily long. I could equate or imagine such impossibilities. This, that, this again, and yes, of course, of course. How very German of you for asking. I did return the ring, but I kept the pearls. I kept his mother's pearls. Was that wrong of me? So that's the first one. Ezra Pound, shall we say, got around quite a lot with everyone. <laughs> with everyone. So she was, I think her, she was quite... Um, Obviously quite young and naive at that point. Um, I'll move on to a little bit later in a relationship. Say, And these are, when you hear the different voice, it's often Freud coming in and asking questions. Or sometimes it's um, another voice from the past. Sometimes it's Ray's, sometimes it's someone else's. But... So this one, um, this one she's trying to come to terms of what exactly was going on in that relationship. So this one's called, You Spoke of Grapes. In my friend's house, there are many rooms with doors that open and close and open. I don't want to explain the intricacies 
of biology or elucidate pathological impulses, equations. I've never had a head for algebra. I failed. It was a failure. You remember my failing? Yet I was not jealous. How could I be? He was a satyr. Everyone knew it. And I, just a girl he carried into the forest, even then he did not complete the metamorphosis. Padding through the woods, tenacious, wild, his flowering rod, a shrieking mandrake, knew no bounds. Trees shook, and the forest, it seemed, submitted to his whim. This was no gothic illusion. He was God's own goddamn country. His mandrake adrift in leaves in the sound of their rushing free. I suffocated. I was tree. Shaken, I shook in my friend's house. But even then, even then, walls would not fall. Doors opened. I was the one. He opened. And suffocated. He opened. I was not jealous. How could I be? There was no naming this queer quiver, this pulse, and the mandrake shrieking rooted in tree. Here, where even the walls do not fall, trees shook, leaves rushed to escape the harlequin. I was tree, shaking, quivering. But you spoke of grapes, and air, and grapes, and suffocated. I am starving. So I'll move us along a little bit here. Uh, and I realized today that, that I can't count to ten. <laughs> I practice every day with the kinders. I noticed I skipped numbers. Um, so some of you may know that, that, that HD... I won't say that she followed Pound to, to, to Europe, but she ended up in Europe where Pound was. And that's where, of course, things began to change. And uh, at this time, she was with Richard Aldington. And this is where Hilda, Hilda Doolittle, and she always hated the Doolittle. I mean, it's a very difficult name to live up to, isn't it? <laughs> um, she began, well, Pound renamed her, and, and the imagist... HD as Imagist was born. So this one, it's a little bit about that. So it's called These Roses, Those Thorns. Ask for anything. Trips to Europe, a grand piano, Walter Morse Rommel. Even now I will not trade those roses half-bloomed, for these needling their way through a reluctant heart. A rose is a rose, too. We read in the dark in the British Museum, everyone enjoying the gloom, and he stalking the aisles of links among statues, slashing his quill pen. Merciless, he battled my poems between his great paws, shortening the lines. He pad-padded about, poured tepid tea, and agreed herms of the way a good fit. There was blood on the floor where I struggled, writing the dark and gloom. Poems curled their lines, lingered in the margins of the page, breathless, began to cross, uncross their limbs, and kicking hard under the table, bruised my knee and declared themselves roses about to bloom. 
I ran towards his perfection. Intuit and awkward, he took my trembling hand and signed my name at the bottom of the page. It was dark, and enjoying the gloom, I settled in my chair, the room smelling of roses and blood and tea and roses about to bloom. The hunt over, the kill complete, limping toward perfection, padding about the room, thorns in her thumbs, herms crawling on all floors. That was the last I saw of Hilda. Okay, I'm going to skip now to a very different part of the book. Um, one of the most, I suppose, theories that uh, Freud is famous for is his dream theories. And of course, dreams are very important. And when I wrote this book, I kept a dream diary for about six years and reworked and reworked that material. Had a heck of a time with it. So much so that in the beginning, I, I, uh, I didn't know what to do with that part. So in the last, since moving back east, this was the part that I had to come back to. I had to make it fit better. So these are based on, as I realized when I was writing the dream journals, some of my dreams, but I was absorbing all this material. I can't seem to keep these cards. I was absorbing all this material. Some, some of these are mine. Some of these are HDs. And the book ends with an absolute crisscross. There's lots of crisscross happening. Coming back to that now, is I, I feel like I'm an outside reader because when it comes out like this, it doesn't feel like yours anymore. It doesn't feel like mine anymore. And I'm seeing even more crisscrosses then. So I'm going to read you a couple from the dream sections. Um, the first one I'm going to read is from Ununking the Unk which was H.D.'s way of... of she wrote that to a letter to her partner, Briar. She had to ununk the unk, which was a process of the uh, psychoanalysis. Yeah, the unk with the unconscious. Isn't yeah, looking at the unconscious. Her, her partner was very, very into psychoanalysis, and that's how she, she got into all this. So this one's called, from the Dream Journals, I Held Out My Hands. I held out my hands, a bowl with nothing in them. Refusing my offer, she began to laugh. I wasn't sure I heard or if I imagined. I gave her smile more meaning than desired. Remembering Sappho and the sisters, I wondered who spoke. She? I? Who came before? Shimmering in the light, her face came into focus, holy and human. She rose a full moon in the morning each blessed spot to nestling. Lacking patience, unable to sit still, I worship from afar, inept, unrecognizable. How could I know, my begging hands, my stooping shoulders, the weight of this world and the next, bends like a wishbone wished, already broken, beyond hope. My bowl, empty, fuller than it was before, what? Must I beg? Again, she is laughing. When I hold out my hand, the idea fills me. Catching the emerald, she threw stones of light. Twigs, griffin feathers fluttered in the green. I reached toward them, turning time screw and slowed it. You are a proper idiot, she says, her face smiling. We continue playing, she and I, Herms and Aphrodite, stoic, 
tossing the stone, the jewel so near my grasp, air rushes between the spaces of my fingers. I knew it might unknot the underworld, grip the holy grail, and like that, just, I was filled with longing. Uh, I'm going to skip to the next little dream journal um, from the last part of the book, which is called Conversing with the Dead. Oh, no, maybe not. Uh, sorry, I'm going to rewind. I'm going to rewind here. Sorry, this is from the second part of the book. Second part of the book, um, Resisting Analysis. And this one was called um, Who But the Dead? A black bear shimmies up a Harris pine, rounds its back, hedgehog prickly and perforates time. My hand, lost in the pocket of my old coat, curls around an acorn. Wind in the oak leaves. Ah, now, another day, another dusk. Here we might live forever, mouth to mouth, say nothing, tell me nothing. The sun shifts, sinks against the sky, Still you do not wake, still you do not stir. Rubbing the acorn, a week, a month, years pass. Who but the dead measure time? A black moon, mercury retrograde. I could dream, but it's crowded there. Pictures, words, too many images to decipher. I don't understand. What happened yesterday, before? I was waiting for tomorrow. Ah, now I am listening for the dead. Today, tick-tocks, the clock sign will not rewind. September ends without much to say. Listen, that's the last strain of summer. The cicadas do not sing as loudly as they did before. Squirrels jump branch to branch, leap from the vines, land on the roof, thump, thump. Mother says it's raccoons. I know better. Look, there are apples, small ones, gifts in the grass. Dog is delighted and watches the sky for falling fruit. The linden tree leans against its branches. We are tired, the sun sleepy. Me too, rubbing the acorn, I am perfectly content, thumbs pricking to think of you. Reading late, playing fire and light. Strike a match. Is it dark yet? There are no stars in the sky. Tigers, lambs, chimney sweeps. A forest of bears disappears. Innocence gone, a hedgehog loses all sense of direction. Head full, fruit forgotten in the grass. Light fades. I do not recall the hour, the last strain of summer, a field of falling acorns, wind in the oak trees. Ah, now, I fear the cicadas do not sing as they did before. Okay, I'm going to go back. Take us back to H.D. Um, if you don't know H.D., she lived a very long time. And um, so these reflections date from very early days. Um, I've dated them pretty much from teenager, so 1905-ish 
And then I have them echoing in her head as, you know, how you have a conversation and then you keep having it for years and years and years. So some of these things may have happened after Freud's death, but she's still talking to him in her head. So this one is called Refusing Persephone's Bowl of Fruit. Goodbye, Dave. You'll come over Christmas Day, won't you? That was the first I heard of him. A tickle in my head calling names. He didn't know mine. He hadn't named me yet. Perhaps the child's presence helped loosen that slim line connecting me to him. That long ago knotted thread slackened now, but always present. I surprised myself by daring to cross that rope, by refusing Persephone's bowl of fruit. Instead, I cast myself to sea. A garden of violets, winter rose, black crocus lilies. Their long necks, their delicate heads, still standing after a windstorm. In the orchard, Botticelli nudes, we reach for an apple, stretch beyond the fruit, beyond the serpent flicking his forked tongue. Ray slipped a rope around my neck, enticed by the promise of green, and apples in the orchard, and green, I joined him. His firm flesh, his white lie. He called me queen of love, but never Aphrodite. His release from St. Elizabeth's? Hopeless. Mine, it lived in the cantos, flipped its tongue in the tepid pools of September, where he sat fanning his angry flame, threading his rope, offering fruit, remembering green. I could go either way, to sea or to the gates of St. Elizabeth. It was Easter Sunday. His lovely voice spread before us larger than life and wormed its way through our skin. Are there apples yet on the tree? The tickle tickled my throat, and the breeze and the blind shook and curved my line of vision. Yofi licking my sweating palm brought me back suddenly to the room where light falls between afternoon and dinner, black, gray, hours without a hint of green. It was Easter, and thinking of his resurrection, the snake in the garden flicked its forked tongue. Nudes fat from eating apples, sick from eating apples, knew to leave worm alone. And the rope? A thin thread about my finger. I could snap it with my teeth. His prison, where lines held the page stark and black, Ray's image without a trace of green, without a hint of salt or blossom, took my breath, suffocated, drowned. I was afraid. Still, he called me queen of love, but never Aphrodite. Okay, I'm going to finish. I'm going to finish with... Um, the one that actually finishes the book and I'm coming back to conversing with the dead and this is where uh, all things intersect shall we say so this is based on H.T.'s dream and everything coming together so I'll end here the myth turned it was supposed to be spring when I saw the griffin yet his wings full of snow sagged with the weight of winter and his beak caked in ice froze the daily news solid between his chops April would remain April 
Wednesday would be that Wednesday blossoms would not bloom. The war continued. We could hear bullets rushing through wind. The griffin starved, took a bite of apple I was eating, and lit the sky red. Then the world on fire. I wanted to return to winter, to that bird, its cold news. But instead, reclining on the couch, my hands dangling over the furniture, I stirred the flames of desire. I stroked plumes of smoke. Yofi came trotting into the room and licked my salty palms. First one, then the other, then a look from Rex sent him to his master's side. Afterwards, I drank white wine from the Holy Grail and ate apples at the Vine of Divin. I sat outside crying for lilacs and was embarrassed for myself. There was blood on my pillow. It was August, and the sun high on light and air turned the myth I was dreaming. Again, it was spring, wasn't it? Fido's paw pat thumped miles away. His whiskers flickered with light. His fur jumped with fleas and his paws frantically scratching air. An impossible itch itched. It was an impossible war. A lovely dog. I believed I could burn that burning candle by the bed. And the dream bruising the skin beneath my eye, purple and sleepless. Winter circled above. It was dark. I don't remember. Dangling my head over the rim, my wine glass hummed as I swallowed a bite of apple. Sirens sang in the street, yet I did not move to join them. Instead, bowed my head to Griffin's frantic thrashing. Beating the air senseless, the war might have ended on that last hit, on that flat note. There was blood on my pillow. When I woke, someone had lit the candle by my bed. I could smell wax and imagined a puff of smoke swimming toward light. The myth turned. Lilacs reluctant to open stood against the light, stoned the sun to sleep, opening their eyes. Branches punched air. The winter gone, the ice broken, and the war. The griffin held the daily news between its chops. It was winter. It was cold. A spot of blood stained my pillow. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Kath. What a beautiful reading. And the more, the more you know about H.D., the more you know how rooted Kath's book is in H.D., and yet it, it takes flight and it is very much itself. So I thought I'd read my two H.D. poems, which are very different and much more earthbound, and then I thought I'd read A, a Little From the Walls Do Not Fall, and you mm -hmm. might... Um, you might be thinking of questions as I do this. This is not going to be very long. Unless anybody has burning questions now, in which case, you know, ask before I start. <laughs> so, um, also, I did not catch HD's voice. These are, um, <clears throat> these are in my voice. So, one thing I love about HD, she had crush after crush affairs that ended badly, even marriage. Her husband left her for the woman upstairs. I love you, I desire, Lotra. 
At 74, she wrote, the reddest rose unfolds. She burned incense to Athena, Artemis, Sophia, but most of all, Aphrodite. H.D. claims you can love up to death's door, requited or not. No shame, it's still the real deal. No healing without Aphrodite. Maybe no poems either. <laughs> Seventy-five, and you know, <laughs> and, you know, Kath said she had a very long life. Well, <laughs> it seemed longer than seventy-five years. She just she she packed a lot in. I but think also, you know, when you're going over the when you start reading her at, at nineteen seventy-five, seems like a good long life, and then, then when you get well, I just she just she just did a lot. She wrote a lot. She lived a lot. And she like she lived through two wars. Yeah, I think all she, of had, that. she had a very packed. She very packed and lots of yeah. several emotional breakdowns and yeah. And she did have this huge crush on a journalist when she was seventy-four. Yeah. He was Haitian, you know. And she, you know, she never she never thought. Well, I'm too old to have crushes, which you yeah. know, which I love about her. <laughs> okay, and, and this next poem I owe I owe to Kath, who sent me um, Anne Carson's dual language um, edition of Sappho, um, who was one of HD's touchstones. Who's now my cat? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, well named cat. <laughs> um, Okay, so this is looping over fragments. It ends, it ends with HD. Those bits of Sappho's poems that survived 2,500 years, disintegrating parchment, reading hers like walking on wobbly stones through streams, glimpses of girls flitting through distant copses, those tantalizing vanished words, those fragments trying to clutch at dative plural endings to find the sense like grabbing at Peter Pan's heels as he flies out the window, leaving only his shadow. So many poets have traveled here before, balancing the echoing gaps against those sparse, imperishable words. How many have puzzled over Poi Colothron, Anne Carson says spangled, all dazzled by the crowns of violets, the rich gold bracelets, purple cloaks, the golden mist of Aphrodite, making us want to know those girls, conjured with a name, a word, lovely Attis who left Sappho for Andromeda, shapely Minasitike, melodious Gongoa, and one, unnamed, blown into life by H.D.'s weaving of Sappho's words. I think no girl can ever stand beneath the sun, or ever will again, and be as wise as you are. Okay, mm. So those are my two HD poems. And then I, I thought I would read just um, a little of the beginning of the first part of HD's trilogy, The Walls Do Not Fall. Um, a little of the beginning and a little of the end. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then you might think about questions. So. Um, H.D.'s War Trilogy was written in London during the Blitz, and the first part was written in 1942. Um, the dedication is to Briar, H.D.'s life companion, really. 
um, for Cardat 1923 from London 1942. And you'll notice that she, she weaves between ancient Egypt um, and war-torn London, the shrine open to the sky, um, buildings without doors, um, the ruins. An incident here and there, and rails gone for guns from your and my old town square. Mist and mist gray, no color. Still the luxor bee, chick, and hare pursue unalterable purpose in green, rose-red lapis. They continue to prophesy from the stone papyrus. There, as here, ruin opens the tomb, the temple. Enter there, as here, there are no doors. The shrine lies open to the sky. The rain falls here. There sand drifts. Eternity endures. Ruin everywhere, yet as the fallen roof leaves the sealed room open to the air, so through our desolation thoughts stir. Inspiration stalks us through gloom. Unaware, spirit announces the presence. Shivering overtakes us, as of old, Samuel, trembling at a known street corner. We know not, nor are known, the Pythian pronounces. We pass on to another cellar, to another sliced wall, where poor utensils show like rare objects in a museum. Pompeii has nothing to teach us. We know crack of volcanic fissure, so slow flow of terrible lava, pressure on heart, lungs, the brain, about to burst its brittle case, what the skull can endure. Over us, apocryphal fire. Under us, the earth's sway, dip of a floor, slope of a pavement, where men roll drunk with a new bewilderment, sorcery, bedevilment. The bone frame was made for no such shock knit within terror, yet the skeleton stood up to it. The flesh, it was melted away, the heart burnt out, dead ember, tendons, muscles shattered, outer husk dismembered, yet the frame held. We passed the flame. We wondered what saved us, what for. Um, Ill-promised adventure, good was smug and fat, Good was the tasteless pod stripped from the manna beans, pulse, lentils. They were angry when we were so hungry for the nourishment, God. They snatched off our amulets. Charms are not, they said, grace. But gods always face two ways, so let us search the old highways for the true rune, the right spell, recover old values. And then I'm going to read just a little from from the end. Um, okay. Still the walls do not fall. I do not know why. There is a hiss, lightning in a not known, unregistered dimension. We are powerless. Dust and powder fill our lungs. Our bodies blunder. Through doors twisted on hinges and the lintel slant crosswise, we walk continually on thin air that thickens to a blind fog then step swiftly aside, for even the air is independable, thick where it should be fine, and tenuous where wings separate and open, and the ether is heavier than the floor, and the floor sags like a ship floundering. We know no rule of procedure. We are voyagers, 
discoverers of the not known, the unrecorded, we have no map. Possibly we will reach haven, heaven. Thank you. <laughs> okay, and I'm sure Kath would be happy to answer questions. Um, something that I, I didn't pick up on, and that was um, Freud's voice. I couldn't. I was wondering if you could go back through maybe one or two of the poems that you read that, where it was really prominent. Oh well, let's see. What did I read? Sometimes he asks questions. Let's see. Uh. Um. He's not in every one. He comes and goes. Like she's, no, he was in love with her. He felt that she was going to carry on uh, what he had done in psychoanalysis in the poetry. He, he admired her, her genius, her creative genius. And when she first went to him, of course, it was, it was you know, um, he didn't believe that women could be geniuses. So he was, I think, it was probably more difficult for him to... And I think, I, so I was telling Elizabeth at, at dinner, I think one of the things that, that he probably, maybe he fell in love with her that first time she came into the office and she looked at all the antiquities he had in his office. And he mentioned that. He said, you looked around before you looked at me. The, the tremendous, because he's used to being looked at first. I'm <laughs> um, trying to find uh, an exact. Um, sometimes it's inferred. Like, was that wrong of me? She's 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 clearly looking at him at that point, saying, "Was that was that the wrong thing to do when when I read?" Uh, I did get that. Him yeah. Him talking to her. Um, he does. I'm trying to find an example now that I've said that. Uh, oh, I know I read an example of it, and I just have to find it. There was an example. I just <laughs> I'm looking for it. I'm looking for it. Um, and clearly, when she was saying, you know, I, I don't want to explain this, that she's she's in full fledged conversation now, right? Um, hmm. I think I picked her up as a listener, but not so much as a speaker. He doesn't speak very often. Um, we get hints of it. How very German of you for asking? Like sometimes it's just in her head. Because remember, these are. I'm working at the conversations that are in her head, that as they're echoing. You know, as you get further and further from the memory. Right, the memory starts to fragment of, of what you might have said or what you wanted to say, what you think he would say, how he, how you think he would answer. Yeah. I don't know why I can't find an example of it now. No, but I mean, it is. The other comment I wanted yeah. to say is the way you've structured it, I don't know if it's the way you've structured it, or your language, or the mm -hmm. length of your poems, but there's something in it that has the same inertia as her poems. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you tumble along. where you take it. Some of them do do that, yes. Um, I was trying to pick, well, I picked some shorter and some longer. 
Um, but there's not a lot of super short, there's not a lot of short poems in this book at all. Because they're all sort of echo when they pick up and they sort of thread in that whole... I was working very much on her philosophy of layer, layer, layer. Right. And, and you know, when you have those certain conversations, it's the important ones that keep echoing back. And you think, it, you know, you, you go through it yourself. If I should have said, did he say? Did he really say that? Should I have? Dot, dot, dot. Maybe if I'd said this, maybe he said that. So you start to I mean, second guess. There's a lot of questions that are asked in the book over and over and over again. Which is very interesting. The indecisiveness. Yeah, but she has a lot of questions in her poetry, too. Yeah, she has a lot of questions in her poetry. And a lot of... I've picked up on sort of things that she might have said in a letter, to, to especially to Breyer during the time period. And she leaves things very open-ended. She leaves it very open-ended, yeah. Which is one of the things I love about her work. Yeah. That there is no, there is no clean cut ending. Yeah. Which is why I think I say that she lived like to me. She doesn't feel like seventy, like in her seventies. She just feels like to me. And I think maybe because I'm, I'm thinking of the death mask too. Was a friend of mine just did a portrait, and her practice was actually doing the death mask. That's how um, my friend Brenda painted this. Because she got to know the face as an older woman. And I said, no, 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 do her younger. She was beautiful. She was a beautiful, beautiful woman. Very, very tall, like six, six foot tall, very beautiful woman. And so to me, like, she just, she's lived a million lives. Just where, where was she during the first world war? She's over in Britain. In Britain? Yeah. And for the second war. So she British was living in Britain. Yeah. She was American. Originally, she is American. And even right to the end, you can see in her papers and whatnot, she always calls herself American. So what, what took you to... Do this work? Like what? What brought me? Yeah. I don't know. I was in the middle of Saskatchewan in a cornfield. I I was trying to finish my last edits on my other book on Catherine Mansfield. I have no idea, but I think the only thing was every morning I read HD. I read from the the big collective that I always bring with me when I go away. And I would read that really early in the morning and I'd go for a really long Saturday run. I'm and I started to just think about her craft and because and, and, and she's an amazing poet. And, North of Kingston. You know, thank goodness it wasn't a third reader because you can't read after HD. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was hard to read after you, too. No, 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 no. you can't read after HD. So I think I would, I, I, I spent. Because I didn't start writing these till probably the end of my second week on my retreat, and I just I was reading and reading and and, and reading just these poems. And ironically, I know that a lot of people differ on this, but I love her early work. I really love the energy in the early work and the simplicity. And um, I'm always trying to simplify things because I think I think particularly when you come from an academic background we tend to get overly complicated and and um, it was my PhD um, my mentor for my PhD who's also a, a poet Doug Barber and and he always said to me stop researching that stop it That's what he always says to me stop he says just go and do it do it do it and uh, so what that was always echoing in my voice. And when I started working on these, when I first started reading them in public, um, Doug would come and he'd go, So, you've got the book yet, Kath? And I'm like, No, I'm still researching. He goes, You're always researching. Stop, stop. 
I said, no, but I don't know everything yet. I don't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. So, to get... I found pound, I found pound um, challenging. Cause well, there's the always best. more to her, is what you're saying. It's there's always more. more. I think there's so much so to her. You never... Oh, I could, I could spend another, I'm sure, ten years doing more. Because there's so much there, and she's so com she's so complex. I'm not gonna say complicated, but she's so complex, and I think her life was so rich and so. I find it the whole thing mind-boggling that you can, you know, like here she was going to Freud, and it was still relatively psychoanalysis was still the big thing, and you know that we could correct all our faults, we could fix you, we'll make you whole again. That was the whole idea, particularly if you were bisexual or you know. And I, I think more people, I think she'll be trendy now. Sure. Because I think more people will start to discover, hey, she's people were thinking of these things even back then. That, um, you know, and, and which is why I read the first one, that, that true innocence at the beginning about that, that, that Pound was, all these rumors were going on that he was bisexual and he was this horrible womanizer on top of it and he was just like completely foul individual and uh, you wouldn't want your daughter marrying that guy and of course her, her parents. And he, and he also never had much money. No, which, but his parents did. His parents had money. Well, they didn't have a lot of money. They had some money. Yeah, they had some money. but They were, they were into the gold and, and um, I, I, I so maybe we should send that book to Doug Ford. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I noticed he was on the news tonight. Mm -hmm. Oh dear. Oh yes, yeah, it's, it's never good news. Uh, <laughs> what's the poem you read? Uh, what's the you read from about the wall? Oh yeah, the wall's not full. Uh, roughly, how old was she, or what part of her life um, was, it was that when she was? Uh, um, she was born in 1886, so that's 14, and 42 is 56. So she was writing while that was happening. Yeah, yeah, she was right. You know, there was her hits. The bombs were falling all around. Mm -hmm. She stayed for the Blitz, and she was actually very proud of the fact she stayed. Yeah. And she stayed for the Blitz because she said London was where her poetry was first recognized. Mm -hmm. She wasn't going to leave. Mm -hmm. She had a lot of offers to leave. People yeah. wanted her to leave. She didn't want to leave. Yeah. Uh, this is just—I don't know how, how they're finished reading um, Regeneration uh, recently, though. Um, uh, Barker, um, Barker. Yeah, yeah, yeah the trilogy. Um, yeah, and, uh, and then, and then uh, the next book Betsy had read was uh, A Country Road a Tree, which is Samuel Beckett in France during the Second World War. It's um, just read, you know, hearing, hearing her read that to him, how, I mean, it really. All of this really brings home how, what what that must have been like, like how brave she must have been mm -hmm. to stay there and the privations um, and. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you, and if you read her own work, if you read H.D.'s own biographical fiction, I think particularly I was more struck by her hanging around during World War One, because I found that really brutal, particularly. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth hit on um, when. When her husband Richard, you know, brought home that her, his other his other woman who was staying upstairs, yeah. yeah. And then there's this wonderful passage where he brings home HD some flowers and he goes upstairs to his lover. Yeah. So here's oh, your yeah, flowers, hon. Yeah. Upstairs now. After you 
Yeah, like how she endured all of that. Like, they, Why did she go? Well, well, I guess well, there probably wasn't a choice. There probably wasn't a choice. But the marriage, the marriage didn't It didn't last. work. So <laughs> it didn't last, and then she went Cecil Gray, and then that's how she had her child. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very complicated. I think she, she had, had no children from the first husband. Well, no. she had a, she was, she lost a baby with, with Richard Aldington. Yeah, that, well, that was another thing about the First World War. She lost a baby, yeah. she lost her brother, I think her father yeah, died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was and hard just, on her. It was there really was just hard. a lot of loss, and it's it was all during the war. Huh? And grief. And yeah. And that whole period is very dark and heavy. Yeah. Just, yeah. I mean, I think it was for, it was for so many people that mm. that that's that's not new. But how she endured it, how she lived it, yeah. and yeah. you know, I'm just like amazed when the, you know, just that that one scene always comes back to me. Here's your flowers. I'm going up to my mother now. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> Good night, babe. <laughs> yeah. And she didn't write during World War One, did she? Um, she wrote certainly wrote a lot about it after it. Like, yeah. Right. Didn't she go through sort of a dry spell? She, she went through a few, because she, she wasn't well for some time, right? Yeah. And in 1918, she had the flu. Yeah. She got, like, the 1918 flu, and then she was she was pregnant at that time. Yeah. So, you know, the fear was back then, if you were pregnant during the flu, that, that was most of the deaths occurred to pregnant women usually didn't make it. Oh, really? So she wasn't expected to make it, nor was she expected. And there is, there is a poem in the, um, in the book where she talks about where Pound comes to visit her. And she's so sick, she just really doesn't just care about what the heck she says to him. She's like, she's like too sick. Just. And you know, his only complaint was the child wasn't his. <laughs> she's like, oh, God, your ego, your ego. And here she is, like, so sick. And it's nice, you know, it's the end of the war, and she's so ill, and this is what this guy has to say to her. It's like, oh. But then she said to Briar, I think if I could walk to Delphi, I, I would be cured. Yeah. And Briar promised to take her to Delphi and mm -hmm. did. She huh? did, and she did. That was her that was healing. Great. That was yeah. a great healing, was mm -hmm. when they got to go to Greece. Yeah. And there's a lot. Mm. Of course, HD had a lot of Greek mythology, and there's a lot of yeah. the talk of the Greek mythology in here. And sort of her roots, but uh, Pound introduced her to, and the famous Ishhilda book has references to that throughout as well. So, so um, let's thank Kath again. We can adjourn to wine and goodies. And, you know, and well, flies have landed. I, flies always <laughs> land in my wine glass. <laughs> I have several oh, flies in my wine. Uh, maybe it's a sh shame in trying to contact you. Maybe, maybe it's, it's, yes. I don't know. Anyway, again, thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you for coming. Thank what you for a coming and listening. And yeah. I know you guys are all burnt from all the writers' festivals. Yeah. And you just heard Kath McLean in uh, her book launch, launching her new book called uh, Translating Air uh, with her readings and readings by Elizabeth Green, who emceed the event at Novel Idea that night. I believe it was October 4th. And just a bit of time here, just to quickly tell you, I want to thank you for tuning in to today's show. Uh, you've been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Uh, both hours of the show will be uploaded to my blog space when I get home at Finding a Voice on CFRCFM.wordpress.com. Please do stay tuned to Saltwater Music coming right up at 6 o'clock. Catch you here next week, and this will take us there. Thanks. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. 
CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.